Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Today with Gemma O'Brien, who's a world-famous typographer and artist. And Gemma, it's really nice to see you, although we have been collaborators quite a number of times over the years. Uh, do you remember, I think I actually met you almost 10 years ago, uh, when I had the rare pleasure of actually discovering you from a viral video. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you, you'd covered your entire body with a felt-tip pen. Correct. That's right. That was kind of my big break in the typography world. I, 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 I don't think every, there's very few people on the planet who say they became famous on YouTube. But uh, <laughs> I noticed that video has disappeared. Yes, I think that's actually due to copyright because the song was a Fat Boy Slim song. Really? And so it, once licensing changed in different countries, it was pulled. But um, oh, there's, a certain, yeah. there's a certain irony. <laughs> the digital world had its final laugh on your uh, analog exactly. artistry. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, we also collaborated together most recently on my, on my book, The Dictionary of Dangerous Ideas, where you created this incredible alphabet. Uh, so it, it's good to see you again in person. Thanks for having me. Uh, what led you into typography? Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's such an ancient um, and so analog uh, profession uh, for someone who's so young, uh, clearly a millennial, to, to be so passionate about. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, initially the idea of typography within design when I was studying design actually was quite boring to me because the way that it was taught, you know, coming through this, the computer generation that was integrated into the design degree. And so a lot of it was quite boring. It was all about you don't mix these fonts. You know, you have to have the right line spacing and the, you know, it was very rule based. And so for me, initially that wasn't interesting, but I had an experience in the letterpress studio where you set type by hand, which is how they used to do it. And for me, that changed everything because it was physical. You could touch it. It was tangible. You know, all the even physical spaces were a piece of metal. So everything started to make sense. And I just kind of became addicted. And so from that point forward, I just started researching the history of typography and, you know, noticing it in my environment and just realizing how much it infiltrates, you know, all aspects of your life and can take on so much meaning and character. It was really interesting to me. Yeah, I guess when you look at the history of type, I mean, we, we sort of went from a time when lettering was very ornate, the medieval, like the kind of a, the illumination of mm-hmm. the monks to when it became very pragmatic. Yeah, At the exactly. beginnings of... Uh, and in some ways now we're sort of moving back yeah. once again to realising the power of type as, as a form of art. Definitely. I think it goes through waves if you look through history and you kind of see obviously when the monks were creating and writing out these manuscripts or they were writing out the bible and it was all about illuminating it and it was this spiritual thing as well and then as time went on you know obviously you have the production of books and it becomes something that's mass produced so you need to have it fast and accessible and then after it becomes something which is kind of austere and very clean there's a there's a want or a need for something that's more intricate or interesting or human and so i think that it's it's a constant battle between these two kind of push and pull within type. Yeah. Your work is very handmade. Uh, so hand lettering, where you're, you're physically doing it yourself, is a big part of what you do. But it's also a big part of what brands are also now becoming more attracted to. What, what's giving rise to this new interest uh, that brands have in 
the handmade part of, of their brands. Mm. Well, I definitely noticed in my own practice, you know, I never initially set out to only do work by hand, but there was a demand and there was a growing demand for it over the last, you know, five years. And part of it was this kind of, you know, wanting it to feel more human or authentic. There was a big chalk trend a couple of years ago where everyone <laughs> wanted chalk looking typography. And so I started to think about that. I thought, well, what is it about this style of typography or lettering that's so attractive to companies, especially if they're selling, you know, in the industries of like food and alcohol. And it was this kind of thirst for the real. And I think coming off the back of this technological kind of shift and everything was digital, fonts were easily available, but they became a little bit, I guess, inaccessible and less human. And so everyone suddenly returned to let's make it feel handmade or feel customized or unique in some way. How does that play out? Are you physically having to paint billboards or mm. is it on product packaging or, or in pop-up stores what, what, what I think generally that, happens? you know there's a scale of how much it is actually real and sometimes you can emulate or craft that mm. so for example there was a job that I did for Kira and Cider where they commissioned me to hand paint 37 billboards and just the typography um, so that <laughs> well, was very much climbing, real were you climbing up the sides of buildings yeah, well they had a large um, kind of studio space where I did 36 of them and I did one in real life which they then filmed and did the behind the scenes video so that was very much real and true <laughs> to the process but then there'd be other jobs where they're like we want this for you know an editorial photo shoot can you create the type for a chalkboard and I'll just do it in Photoshop but nobody would know so there's different degrees of it being real and how much you can kind of trick people into making it feel well, this real. this kind of behind the scenes things is part of it as well isn't it they're, they're showing the provenance of, of yeah the, I think that big brands the these days and you know part of it's wanting to show this link between the creator or the artist, the real artist and this work, which is done for their brand, gives it a bit more um, weighting and significance. And I think the other side of it is social media and the way that people consume advertising these days is so much more based on video or short little snippets of a behind mm. the scenes to show the process video. And, you know, I'd say about 50 to 60% of the jobs I do nowadays have that kind of process behind the scenes component in them. And then also, I guess, brands are trying to create things that are inst Instagram-worthy. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So I think, you know, Instagram and any other kind of visual-based media has grown from something that's been just purely social for me, even personally. I know my account on Instagram started off as just whatever I was doing that day, and now is very much a brand tool. You know, the audience that it grows and the new work that it generates means that you have to treat it, like, I think, as part of your brand. You can't ignore that anymore. So where do you think it's going to go in terms of, uh, I guess, how brands use typography? If you look at the old days, there were style guides, there were very strict guidelines about the way brands had to be presented, about all forms of communication. Mm. Is this a sign that they're loosening up a little bit in, in, in the way that they're trying to communicate with the next generation of consumers? Mm. I think in some ways um, it's loosening up. But, you know, if you also think about branding and logos, you know, once upon a time there was a huge emphasis solely on the mark or the visual, yeah. you know, identity, whereas now it's a lot more kind of whole in the way that they will incorporate so many different elements into what represents their brand. I mean, you could have a bad logo or something that's a bad piece of typography, but build such a good brand around it that over time it may not matter so much. Whereas other times, you know, it's how much can you make a good brand, make the design good and vice versa. But I think that in the future, the way that brands will use typography or the way that typography will kind of fit in within their bigger image will change with the technology and the culture as well you know it'll shift in between trends and trying to yeah. sustain 
current and unique. It's interesting how interface design is starting to respond to the way that we interact with, with type. Mm. I, I noticed recently that Amazon developed a font for the Kindle specifically for the for better legibility mm-hmm. on, on an e-reader. Oh, that's interesting. Um, what, was it, what was it called? I have no idea. Yeah, right. Um, but it was like exclusive to Yeah, that. but basically they said, you know, you should oh. use this font because it, it will make the Kindle experience better. And I know Apple went through this whole sort of, you know, design yeah. really around legibility. And, mm. uh, well, I think with reading especially, um, you know, there's an age-old saying which you read best what you read most. So, you know, people would often ask, why are books um, designed with serif alphabets? And there was all these different theories, you know, someone said, you know, will the line, the feet, you know, make lines <laughs> and it makes it easy to read. And then there's different um, theories about the, you know, the amount of words that you read in one go. And then someone came up with this theory. It's like, you just read best what you read most. And so <laughs> if, you know, if it's Amazon, if it's Kindle, if you're reading it every day and your eyes become accustomed to that size and the lighting on the screen, then it will be a more pleasurable experience. But I think it's about habit. Aren't you sick of Helvetica? <laughs> sick of Helvetica. <laughs> uh, I, I personally never get sick of any fonts. I mean, you think about like Comic Sans and Papyrus and all these ones that have been the, the brunt of jokes oh. and, you know, you think about it and I think it's always like, you know, they're not inherently bad, but they only become bad through use or through cultural reference. I mean, obviously in the documentary Helvetica, that's kind of touched on the ways that Helvetica came to represent these brands that were trying to be transparent or particular wars and those sorts of things and you know comic sans only got the bad rap because it's used inappropriately and was freely available and so everyone can have it and so yeah. i think it's interesting how it can kind of become have these negative negative connotations through well, there's this point i think at, at, at the birth of desktop printing where mm. people everyone thought they were a, a graphic artist and, yes and uh you know there'd be like 20 different fonts per page <laughs> yeah definitely and i think that because the technology is facilitating apps or programs that everybody can use that just means that if you are a practicing designer as a profession there has to be a point of difference so how you either take on a particular voice in your work or do something in a different way has to make you stand out from the things that are becoming you know increasingly accessible or digitized when you look at the apps that have been very successful design has been a key part mm. of the, um, i guess of the product itself yeah the interface is kind of essential to the way they've managed to recruit and convert and get people to use the product. Definitely. Uh, do you think Do you think type is a big part of that or do you think type sort of fades into the background? No, I think it's very important, but I think if it does fade into the background, that's probably a good thing. You shouldn't notice it for many instances in these kind of apps or these kind of applications where the design is so good, it should be that it facilitates the use. And, you know, and that's one particular way of using typography and design. Um, that's very successful. In other instances, you want the typography to be the focus of the thing that speaks loudest, but I think often it should just be something that facilitates it to be used easily. Do you think we're really aware of our relationship with, with, with type and words and images? I mean, it feels like we're surrounded by it, but to some extent it's unconscious, but it's an important, mm. it's an important uh, relationship. Yeah, though, I definitely it? think, I think it's changed in the last, you know, 10 years even with it becoming something that's culturally referenced even with the Helvetica movie there's a lot more books that are sold in the mainstream um, but you know like architecture or any other kind of like fashion design that everyone experiences in some way typography I think it becomes invisible in your environment but you still respond to it so you know if a heavy metal band suddenly has a logo that looks like a uh, you know a wedding invitation script font you would 
you would maybe be suspect of whether they're a true heavy metal band or, you know, you get certain feelings surrounding the way that typography is used. Right, so you're saying there's there's sort of unconscious cultural idioms in type. Yeah, and they're built up over time. And I think that when you work as a designer, you become more aware of them because you Mm. have to, you know, tap into these different kind of precedents or, you know, intentionally turn them on their heads to create an effective design. But for the majority of people, it's something that you just subliminally take on. It's interesting because there are some cultures that have always revered uh, lettering. Mm. Uh, like I think, you know, I spent part of the year living in Istanbul and, you know, in, of course in Islam you can't represent the imagery around, uh, around religion. So it was all done through, mm. through lettering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess in Japan, similarly, like, there was such great reverence yeah. for uh, the people who could create uh, pictures through words. Definitely. I mean, when I was in Japan a few years ago, I did a traditional calligraphy class and compared to all the other ways that I've learned lettering and calligraphy here, it was so different, a different experience. You know, it was very spiritual. It was very... In what way? How, how, do they, how do they approach lettering differently? To um, I just think it was like, it was definitely a, like the whole experience from how you sit and how you hold the brush and kind of, you know, I think the teacher even said to me, you know, release, or, you know, release your thoughts and become calm before doing it. And so it was a lot more like a link between like thought and body and writing and them all being as one as opposed mm. to, I guess, the way that I would approach lettering and design in other ways, which would be to churn it out in a particular way and create an image. It was a lot more personal, I think, as well. So, yeah. When we, uh, when we worked together in the dictionary, uh, you, you, you created a, a very varied alphabet. What was some of your inspiration? Yeah, um, well, I, think, I think I took, took a lot of the cues of, of some of the references which you had. Were those books that you already had in your own library or elements that you kind of pulled together from like logo marks from the 60s and 70s? Yeah. And, you know, that was a particular time where, you know, you could have these bold lines and simple shapes that could create like, you know, a very powerful image. And so I think those were definitely the starting points for a lot of these kind of alphabets and then visually making them work together as one, as a cohesive kind of set. And also thinking about the individual letter as a picture is something that I always like to think about in my practice and particularly in that project because the letters were on an individual page. You start to think about, you know, the balance and the symmetry and all those different elements coming together as one. Yeah, I guess it's, it's weird in English. We, we don't often look at letters individually. Mm. Uh, we, we just sort of think of like word forms. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I think that's kind of like when I'm working with type, I like the restraints of, you know, you're working with these characters, 26 letters of the alphabet. And yet you can take it in so many different directions, like whether you're working with the word or the individual letter and the number of styles that you can play with. It seems like it would be you know, limiting to work only with the alphabet, but it really has just such a wide range of possibilities. What, what other aspects uh, do you think that design or design thinking can be applied to, uh, you know, to uh, the design of experiences mm. you know, to make them more engaging? Mm. Well, I think that you know, the way that design thinking is being incorporated into so many aspects of business now is almost a basic requirement, whereas once upon a time it was probably something separate that was added on. Yeah. But I think you know, any kinds of creative thinking or looking outside the box or trying to see things from different points of view or the ways that we respond to colour and shapes and those sorts of things will just be integrated within different aspects of, of businesses as a kind of staple. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because it, people are, are looking more and more to design and the idea of design in the way that they think about not just products, but the way they structure their organizations, mm. the way they, they engage mm. with people. And, you know, part of it's creativity, but it also seems that part of it's the ability of a designer to solve a problem. 
Definitely, definitely. And I guess when when you're working on a brief, is that you know is problem solving part of the way you you approach it? Yeah. Well, there's you know there's different ways that it kind of manifests itself. If you get a brief from a client, there'll be a clear kind of goal that they want to achieve. But then I think design thinking, like even in your everyday life, um, I think there was a quote from Alain de Botton saying that you know if there's something that's annoying that you're doing, if you find something irritating, that's a spot for a new invention. You know, so in your everyday experiences. You know, I was just traveling and I was finding it annoying to convert my currencies. And so these little kind of experiences that you have can lead to inventions or ideas, which is exactly what design does. You know, it speaks to the human and to experience and to make those experiences better. So I think that as we move to the future where things become more digitized, you, you know, everything, all of our experiences will change. Design is the thing that will keep it human. Why is that? Like, what what is the connection between design and humanity? Is it because design ultimately has to be engineered to impact with our emotions? I think so. I mean, like, if you think back to the original things that we used, you know, the tools back in cavemen ages, and they had like this kind of—I think it was like a symmetrical shaped kind of stone that they would use to cut things, and that's like oh, essentially right. the that first, was like the, the first tool. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, the first tool, and you know that's design, and the idea of design didn't exist then, but it's still like you know creating things to shape your experience or to make them easier, um, to make them more enjoyable, if then to make them beautiful, you know, and I think that design is multifaceted in the ways that it can do that. Hmm. Um, what, what are some of the things you're working on at the moment that you're most excited about? Well, it's always a quite a big range of different projects <laughs> I work on from, you know, really commercial type projects within logos. I might be doing something for Oreo coming up soon, which is definitely in that world of kind of uh, creating something, documenting the process. And then I'm also trying to have a lot of personal projects going. So I've got a show in Laguna Beach coming up in three weeks over in California where I'll be painting a gallery space with all the murals. Um, and then I also do workshops as well. So often when I travel, I'll kind of teach brush lettering and different kind of te- calligraphic and lettering techniques along yeah. the way. <laughs> um, when you're, I guess, trying to help, I know you did some work, I think, for, for um, was it Nike uh, recently? Uh, yeah, I've done some work for Nike. You were actually teaching the executives about lettering. Oh, yeah, that was in the Nike head office. Yeah. Over in, um, uh, what, what, was, what was the thinking behind getting you to, to do that? Yeah, well, I mean, Nike, their office is like, it's a campus. You know, when I uh, arrived, you have to drive to get around to different spaces because it's so big. So their creative department within um, the company is quite diverse across the different departments. So I think they've they've got this new space which is dedicated solely to, you know, hands-on techniques. They've got screen printing. It's only been there for about six months. So I was kind of brought in to kind of, one, give them a break, I think, from their deadlines from design, <laughs> but also just to, you know, you know, give some new ideas and techniques of approaching lettering that they can then use in their in their own designs. But I think that is just always good when you're working in a business to break it up a little bit as well. But it, it's sort of strange because it, it, there's a very sort of strict approach you'd imagine that Nike would have with the mm. way they handle brand. Yeah. But but in some ways, I guess this gave them the ability to connect at a more authentic level with with, with the way yeah. they perceive type Definitely. And I mean, some of the people that came to the class as well, they've been working at Nike for 10 years and they said, oh, you know, we just do so much on the computer. It's good to get away and work by hand. And I think that's something that I take for granted in my process because I work, you know, 50-50 by hand and, and digitally but it is easy just to get stuck in that digital space when you're designing and it's always good to just open up the thinking and work by hand. It's not a clear division between analog and digital is it? Oh no definitely not and I think they're becoming increasingly merged I think it's easy you know 
if you grew up in a time where you created everything by hand to dismiss technology and go, oh no, you know, it makes everything look digitized. But the reality is you, you can create things and not know whether it was created by hand or digitally and things are advancing so fast now that so many of the techniques that you used to draw can be done directly on the screen with Wacom tablets and those sorts of things. Yeah. So I think that you have to be open to ways that you can have them work together. What, you know, as a practitioner, I mean, what, what are the things that work better at analog versus digital? Mm. Well, I think, and I think this is also where the component of showing the behind the scenes of making it comes into it. But for me personally, I like the process, like if I'm working with ink, you get a lot of kind of transparencies or you get mistakes that you don't get on the computer because you don't have the freedom. You might be able to make an ink brush, but it's still very controlled. Whereas if you work by hand, it has a bit more, I think, variation in the way that the final result looks. So uh, often the starting point for me will be by hand, but then things like, you know, making the files ready for printing or converting them to different media, you know, changing things into vector form for logos, all those kind of things would be impossible without a computer. Yeah. I, I, there's a similar analog in um, in movie making. Like I, mm. I, I know that you know everyone from Tarantino to even J.J. Abrams is sort of going back to shooting film. And, well, yeah, and then sort of doing the digital compositing later. Mm. Uh, but it's it's part of the way that what we perceive as real mm. that somehow yes. the analog, you know, whether it's it's the kind of grain of film or the texture of a brush, yeah. tells us that there's something real going on. Definitely, and I think that there's two parts of it. You know, with film, obviously there is the visual component, but for the practitioner, there's also the limitations which are imposed by older medium. Like I think I heard Vince, um, Vince Gulligan, who's, who did um, Breaking Bad, and he was like, I have to, he filmed the first season or something in film. And then they showed him, they said, look, we'll show you digital <laughs> and film to see if you can tell the difference. And he couldn't tell the difference in the end, like from him himself looking at two right. different screens. And so he said, okay, well, I admit that visually it might look the same, but for him, the process of knowing he had a limited number of shots or the, the limitations that the handmade or different kinds of techniques can impose on the creative process, I think can be helpful. And I know that as well, working sometimes with, you know, analog techniques, it limits the possibilities. Whereas if you're on digital and you're on screen, you can zoom right in, you can see everything. It can take twice as long as it might otherwise. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, who knows? It's so weird that creativity and innovations become something that every even the most boring companies on the planet are trying to figure out. Mm. Um, when you look at the environments that you or other creative people work in, what is it that you've figured out that companies are trying to recreate in, in their environments? Uh, yeah. It's got to be more than just having like a beanbag room and, you know, a big common table where you go Oh, lunch, like, right? do you mean like for the employees? Yeah. Yeah. Like, because it, it, it's not like creativity is just being locked up by a few small people now. Mm. Every company wants to bring that mm. element of, of innovation. Well, I think, you know, there's certain companies, you know, obviously like Google and Apple that would like, you know, want to show to the world, look at look at our work environment, look how fun Pixar, look how fun it would be to come and work here. It's part of their branding. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I think it's over, again, in the last 10 years, this overlap between like work and play. And, you know, if you really love what you do, you shouldn't have to feel like you have work-life balance because it's all as one. And I think that, you know, different ways of stimulating creativity, like you can't just have a ping pong table and then suddenly <laughs> everyone's going to be creative. I think there has to be different ways to activate 
that level of creativity in workspaces. And sometimes I actually think personally, I've worked in different kind of work structures from big companies to working in a shared studio to now when I work just by myself in isolation. And I think that actually sometimes it's good to have a real distinct break between creative work and break or play, because I think that actually allows you to be more creative when you're making and you know maybe joining it all as one in a big creative office space isn't necessarily the answer but i oh, think all oh right so, so you actually see this, mm. this sort of creative work yeah <laughs> and creative play yeah exactly right i think so i think it's good sometimes to distinguish between the two because if the lines are blurred you can feel like you're working and what environments time. are better for each well i personally find that when i'm in my studio space and i'm working it's very dedicated work and it'll be non-stop like often overnight Whereas if I'm traveling or if I'm on a plane, these are like these in-between spaces where I'm not physically able to draw or to create. And that's when I come up with really good ideas, you know? So Generally it's like... on air sick bags, right? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Uh, can you just explain a bit of the backstory behind that? Because uh, sure. I think you're one of the only people that an airline actually recognized for vandalizing their, yes, uh, their, the their, their property. Well, I mean, this started when I was flying Qantas and I was flying a lot for, to do workshops and I started drawing on the sick bags and I decided it would be funny to write a puke pun um, to draw <laughs> it on the bag. So there was like fully sick, licensed ill. I like 50 shades of spray. Oh yeah, 50 shades of spray. So it kind of became this thing I'd do every time I would fly, I would draw on the sick bag. Would you keep them or would you just release them well, out of the wild? Well, I, I would actually leave them in the seat with the idea that someone who was going to ride on the plane afterwards would find it and be, you know, amused. Um, but after doing about eight or nine of them, there was such a big following on my Instagram that I thought I should probably keep these and turn it into something. And so after about a year, I had an exhibition um, of all these framed sick bags. That, and, and Qantas actually came to the exhibition because a lot of the bags were Qantas. And um, they said, look, we love this project. We'd be interested in collaborating. And so, you know, about six months later, I did a project with them for a month. But of course, they didn't want any mention of being sick actually included because that would you know <laughs> potentially make customers feel uncomfortable so we did a variation where it was kind of like a creative drawing on a sick bag right. at different locations and they they wanted the project without the pump <laughs> exactly which at first i was like well that kind of defeats the whole point but at the same time it meant that i could keep the spew bag challenge completely you know my own thing and now if you go to the hashtag on instagram spew bag challenge i opened it up and said for everyone to do it when they flew and it's about 900 entries on that you created your own meme (laughs) (laughs) exactly so that's uh, my new claim to fame (laughs) but what was interesting about that it it was very in a sense low fidelity yes Uh, it was kind of you appropriating a found object and turning it into a design object exactly and I think also if you think about the idea of authenticity it was like people knew that it was real you're sitting there on the plane you can see the the tray table you know the limitations of the size of the bag and that you're drawing it on turbulence so there was something about that that I think you know appealed to everyone plus everyone's been on a plane they felt sick and so it had a universal appeal which I didn't really know when I first started doing that that had you know probably connected with more people than a lot of my design projects had and full credit to Qantas I guess for realizing this was going and realizing it wasn't an intellectual property dispute it was actually a kind of a found brand yeah definitely uh, and I think I mean it was also lucky because their bags actually lent themselves the best to being a big blank canvas because they had no advertising on them so So that was also good do you think there are other examples of where you know normal people and consumers are sort of appropriating 
you know, brands or yeah. interacting with them at some level and, and the brand really has no idea. Yeah, well, I think especially on social media nowadays, I mean, often there's brands that will approach people specifically to do paid posts or come up with ideas. But then also lots of people just do it because they love a brand. They might, especially creative people, they might include an image of something in their post automatically or draw something. And I think sometimes brands will tap into that and then, you know, take it from there. And other times that's the kind of media space that we live in is that you could build a good brand just so you have a great product and people love it. They will promote it naturally for you, you know, in their own kind of spaces. So just lastly, what are you most excited about at the moment? Uh... Ooh, I think <laughs> I get quite bored easily of different techniques. So I mean, like when I started doing calligraphy, incorporating that into my process, that was new, starting to work large scale. So the last year of doing a lot more murals. So I think I'm kind of on the verge of discovering something new or pushing myself to learn a new skill, which will kind of set the path for maybe another couple of years. Letterpress. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll get a letterpress in my garage. <laughs> Gemma, it was great seeing you. It's always great Thank working you. with you. Uh, thanks for hanging out and being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.